All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Photo Work Podcast, the talky and unpredictably touchy-feely version of my book, Photo Work, 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. I am, as usual, for better or worse, Sasha Wolf, uh, recording today from and in the future from the uh, Bearsville Theater Compound up in Woodstock, courtesy of uh, Lizzie Van, who gave me space uh, here, so I'm Really grateful to Lizzie. Thank you so much. Um, I love being here. And yet here, as usual, virtually with my friend and producer, a man too big for two names. (laughs) (laughs) Words no one has ever spoken. (laughs) Michael (laughs) Chauvin Dalton, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) So I have some really exciting news for yes our um <laughs> our listeners from now on uh if you go to aperture online to buy books when you go to check out there's a little place for a discount code and if you put in photowork30 photowork30 you will get 30% off all books with the exception of, you know, something really rare or whatever. But basically, yep, 30% off all books, including my book. Um, so I think that's, yes, yes. Yeah. I'm really happy about that for everyone. I mean, I'm going to take advantage of it. I personally. know. That's what I, just what I was thinking. Like, well, <laughs> I can use that, right? <laughs> yeah, man. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you, so, Aperture. Yep. Thank you, yeah. Aperture. So, Michael, before I ask you how you are and what you thought of the episode, we'll just uh, mention that um, today's episode is a conversation with the photographer uh, Danielle Bowman. Yes. Well, first, let me say how I wish I could be up there with you in your new home office, uh, home studio, and I'm looking forward to the day when we can do things like that. Yep. It is my... my studio here is actually big enough for more than one person. It's very exciting, you know, by virtue of the fact that it's not a closet. So yeah, that's right. (laughs) There would be room for you, man with three names. Oh, that would be great. Yes. (laughs) It would be great. And the the episode is great. I, uh, there were uh, a few things that really stood out to me. One is there was a, a conversation that builds upon uh, something that Todd Heido said in a previous conversation about the the kind of artificial nature of a semester and the idea that you come out with this sort of final work. Danielle mentions that uh, there was this experience she had as an undergrad where, you know, everyone was just trying to be the, a, a genius at all times and, and putting out work on the wall that was supposed to be finished. And it wasn't a great experience for her because she wanted the she wanted to see the mistakes. She wanted to see the process, you know, and, and not have this sort of pressure that everything had to be, you know, this this masterpiece on the wall. Right. It was like you only saw other people's work when it was sort of at its most polished version rather than seeing everyone sort of go through the struggle. Right. Exactly. And then, of course, you have a, a conversation about the 1619 Project, but 
There is one moment when Danielle reveals that when she was uh, invited to participate in <laughs> yeah. the project, <laughs> yeah. she receives this email and she thinks that it's a scam. Yeah, she was so surprised that she she didn't believe it was real, which is <laughs> fantastic. I uh, I had a similar thing happen to me many 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 years ago. I had a short film that was that I was submitting to film festivals and my producing partner did a lot of that for me. I didn't like to get sort of caught up in the emotional roller coaster of it, so I tried to stay out yeah. of it. And uh she submitted to Cannes. I'm sure she told me, I don't know. I had no memory of it and Or she was uh, shielding you, right? <laughs> yeah, she may have been, but they called me. So the director, like the head guy, literally at the Cannes Film Festival in Cannes, called me on the phone to tell mm. me that my film was accepted, you know, was being nominated for the Palme d'Or in the short film category. And I wow. absolutely thought it was a prank. I had <laughs> been working on a television commercial. I'd been hired to pull footage for a television commercial that was being cobbled together using all Peter Sellers playing Inspector <laughs> Clouseau <laughs> in the Pink Panther movies. And I had been for like weeks just watching Pink Panther films and pulling together, cutting out all these sections to make this television commercial. And so oh for people God. who haven't seen the Pink Panther movies, Peter Sellers is doing this fake French accent. Yeah, um, that's hilarious. That's right. Yeah. That's the sort of joke of the entire all the movies. And so I had that fake French accent totally seeped into my brain. And then when this guy called, I absolutely <laughs> thought it was one of my friends pranking me. So I had absolutely no reaction. I was like, uh huh. Yeah, right. Yeah. And it wasn't until sort of the very end of the conversation when he started talking about really specific things that I was like, oh, my God, you have got to be kidding me. This is real. And then I, I mean, I, then I had a huge reaction, although at that point I couldn't be like, oh, my, you know, I couldn't right. let him know. So I just sort of like started oh God, jumping up real? and down <laughs> quietly to myself. And, right. um, but anyway... Yeah, that, that would have. By the way, that would have been an awesome prank had someone pulled that on you. Amazing prank! <laughs> yes. Amazing prank! It, what's <laughs> What's incredible is that this guy's genuine French accent in my head sounded completely <laughs> fake. Like I was so. <laughs> boy, that that could have also been uh, one of your most embarrassing moments in your life's history. <laughs> yes, totally. I mean, I do think there's something really great about like how you manage your expectations and stuff, yes. and like keeping those things that... in check. Yeah, what that really speaks to is the idea, you know, having humility and feeling like when people recognize your work and, and you're still at a level where you're thinking, uh, I'm not there yet, that's got to be amazing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's something also really beautiful about the way in which, you know, humility and managing expectations doesn't have to, you know, quash ambition, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is something I'm always yep. sort of trying to tell artists, you know, it's not moving the goalpost and sort of keeping just keeping your eye on making your work and not getting too caught up in the, you know, sort of highs and lows doesn't mean that you can't be ambitious or that you're not going after these big achievements, right? Um, right. But there's, I think it's wise to sort of yeah, just be careful about that roller coaster ride because it can be um, very fraught, I think, in my experience. Yeah, absolutely. And and just on a, a last note, I think one of the most 
interesting parts of the conversation was the discussion you have about the ambiguity in Danielle's work and the way she describes the kind of multiple perspectives that she's okay with people bringing to her work and even infusing that in her work. Absolutely. Yep, I agree. I love that conversation. And I think I think what she talks about is really, really important. And it's another thing that, you know, I know all of us who do any sort of teaching or mentoring of young artists, this is a concept that we're trying to get them to understand the the need for layers and subtext and complication in their work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what, what separates uh, a piece of artwork from a postcard. Yeah, you um you reveal a little uh, inside baseball on that one, uh, which I'll save for, for the show about you know uh, when you are looking at work. Right. Yep. 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 Well, great. Okay, so we will wrap up and get to the actual conversation. Michael, if you don't mind, please take it away. Uh, my pleasure. And here's your conversation with Danielle Bowman. And don't forget, PhotoWork30 coupon code. Danielle Bowman, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to uh, be speaking with you today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So I ask all my guests just to give listeners a little brief bio of how they got to where they are today, right this minute as you're talking to me. So um, if you could just, yeah, tell us just a little bit about your journey. That would be awesome. Sure. Well, I grew up in LA, um, Los Angeles, California going to the movies a lot. (laughs) And that became, I guess, an obsession with images and photography and film, video. So when it came time to go to college, I went to Cooper Union to study art, um, photo and video specifically. But at Cooper, you're not allowed to specify like that. So I was just studying art. And after Cooper Union, I worked in different ways in the photo industry, I worked as a digital tech. I worked for a photo agent. I did a lot of things around photography, but didn't take pictures for actually quite some time. And then once I realized that that I was meant to be taking pictures and I was meant to be an artist, um, I decided to apply to grad school. Uh, and so I went to Yale for my MFA and graduated in 2018 and have been taking pictures and teaching and just kind of doing the thing ever since I graduated. Okay, so I was not expecting you to say, because we don't really, we've talked before, but we don't really know each other that well, so I didn't know this, but I did not expect you to say that after Cooper Union, there's a whole question there about how you wound up at Cooper Union, but we, we won't we'll save that. Um, but I didn't expect you to say that you stopped making pictures mm. And then you figured out you were meant to be making pictures. But that's sort of incredible. Like, what happened? I mean, did was there a moment of feeling disenchanted or were you just burnt out? Well, I, I won't guess. Why don't you just <laughs> go ahead and tell me? <laughs> um, I, I think I am a very practical person. And unfortunately, that practicality made it very hard for me to comprehend how to have a life as an artist and so Uh, yeah yeah. and so it wound up manifesting as like well 
maybe I can get a job that is photo adjacent and Mm -hmm. be happy. But I was miserable. So (laughs) it became clear after a few years of that, that um, that just wasn't going to do it for me. Yeah. So did you just actively miss making pictures or? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I just I really do. I think I started to understand that the way that I move through the world is, you know, as a person who's like always observing or looking at things or sort of looking at light or looking at how things look and and trying to figure out what things mean. And that I think the best way for me to channel all of those sort of questions is into making work. And when I wasn't doing that, I was really unhappy. Yeah. So I figured that out. <laughs> you know, I listened to a interview you did with, is it Aaron Turner? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you said in that interview that you felt like your work in undergrad was also just not good. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't remember exactly you put it, but basically that's what you were saying. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, I love that you said that out loud. <laughs> and I, I also... I know so many photographers who feel that way. And I just thought it was just, just worth mentioning that that everyone goes through these periods and also that it can take a long time when you're young mm-hmm. to really develop your sort of artistic voice and vision. And so it's it's important just to allow yourself to not be a genius from mm-hmm. jump, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I just wanted to mention that because I, I, I think people sort of sometimes give up on their, themselves too quickly. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever felt that, but mm-hmm. I think it's it's sometimes you just really need to hang in there and let things develop, right? I mean, it so- sounds like it sort of t- took you a while to sort of figure out exactly what kind of work you were meant to be making. Oh, yeah. I think I'm still figuring it out. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> I will be the first person to say that I am really figuring it out still. I think it's important to let yourself not be a genius every day. <laughs> it's like, yes. We put well, I s- never really try and be a genius, thank <laughs> God. So I'm off the hook. But <laughs> Well, that's good. I mean, it's just so easy to put pressure on yourself. Um, It's too easy to compare yourself to what other people are doing. It's too easy to be angry or, you know, disappointed with yourself for not making something incredible, you know, on an hourly basis. But that's just not how it works. It it doesn't. It really doesn't. No. And unfortunately, within art schools and outside of art school, but I think within art school, there's so much emphasis on critique and there's so much emphasis on the final product. And a lot of the time, especially when you're young and especially at a school like Cooper, where you're surrounded by kids who are trying to be geniuses all the time, it gets confusing when all you see is the final thing that someone sticks up on the wall. You don't see all of the turmoil. You don't see all of the wrong turns. You don't see, you know, all of the, the labor, manual, emotional, intellectual that goes into a work. You're just you're just really seeing the end of it. And it's such um it it makes you it's a misconception of all of the work that actually goes into the work. Yep. No, that's a really good point. I want to I really actually I wanna connect that to Yale, but mm-hmm. before we sort of get into the experience of going to Yale, which is I think you know, pretty much widely considered one of the best MFA photo programs in the world. So Mm -hmm. I want to talk about that. Mm -hmm. But I do want to 
mention something that I think is very consequential, which is that you won the Aperture Portfolio Prize this year. It was mm-hmm. announced, I think, in April, which is obviously, you know, tricky timing and probably didn't get as much, you know, fanfare as usually does. Mm-hmm. Um, there's usually not a worldwide pandemic, <laughs> but it's such a huge achievement. And so first of all, I wanted to just say congratulations because, you. you know, I know that it can have really huge implications. I work with an artist, Brian Scopemott, who mm-hmm. who won the Portfolio Prize many years ago, mm-hmm. and it can really propel you. You know, people in the industry, everyone's aware of that, mm-hmm. that, that prize. So I did want to ask you, you know, what did that feel like and how has it changed things if if it has at all or what are your expectations mm-hmm. i mean it felt amazing <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean i don't know like I, <laughs> yeah it was I like it's incredible <laughs> <laughs> um yeah it was great i just um i was surprised i guess i don't know i i worked really hard on that work and i guess speaking of all of the like back end labor that goes into making work. Yeah, I mean I I think only in the past couple years of my own making things have I been able to really have time to sit with the process. In grad school and in school, things happen a lot faster. Outside of school, you really have time to be uncomfortable with the lack of genius on the daily basis. And that work that I applied to the Portfolio Prize with was really one of the first times in my life, I think, that I, if you want to call it an opportunity, had the opportunity to like sit with that discomfort of making So winning the prize obviously felt really great, especially after really sort of wrestling with myself while making that work. And I'm still making it. It's ongoing. And maybe it'll be one of those things that I stop and start. I don't know how long it'll take me to feel like I don't need to add anything else to it. But yeah, it was just it was really a wonderful sort of, I guess, acknowledgement of everything that went into the work, I suppose. I don't know if that sounds weird or something, but... No, it sounds great. I love how it's just... No, I I feel like... I'm just so grateful when I talk to people and they're really honest. (laughs) Uh, Do you want to just tell people which body of work you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. So right now it's called What Had Happened. I had a show at Baxter Street Camera Club of New York last in January of 2020. And I showed this work, the first iteration of this work in that show. And that was what I named the show. So I'm, I'm sticking okay. with that for now. So this is, let, let's just get into it, because I really want to talk about this work and your work in general, because your work, I would say, tell me if you don't agree with this, mm-hmm. um, you can hang up on me. Um, but <laughs> I feel like your work is definitely on the more opaque side in terms of what I think it's about. And and let me just say that I even wrestle with this idea of what that means. Mm-hmm. What does it mean? What something is about? I even think that's a whole sort of dog chasing tail thing. Mm-hmm. But just for the sake of trying to speak plainly, I think that 
Yeah, that I would I would put your work in that category of work where the viewer really is likely to miss a lot of what the artist statement is or what the artist statement, what your statement says about the work that may not all get. And in fact, most of it, or at least, I don't know, we start guessing percentages here, but <laughs> a certain amount of that will not get to the viewer. And mm-hmm. my understanding is that you're okay with that. Mm-hmm. And and whether you are or you're not, I'd like to hear, but but I'm interested in just what what does that mean? Like, what is the right amount of understanding? And, you know, obviously, we want viewers to bring their own, you know, life experience and feelings and emotions and and take all that and then have that be a reinterpretation of the work. That's obvious. That's mm-hmm. what art is. But mm-hmm. certainly your work falls on the spectrum of, yeah, I'll just stick with the word opaque for now. Does that mm-hmm. sound right to you? Yeah, I think um, I definitely am interested in making work that is a little bit more opaque, maybe a little bit more obtuse even is a word that I like to use mm-hmm. um, to describe it. And that is all, that's entire, that desire is entirely based on my own experience as a viewer and with other work and noticing the work that I'm most interested in and the work that I, versus the work that I quickly lose interest with. Like I am interested and usually prefer work that I would also kind of categorize as maybe a little bit harder to read. I just, Mm -hmm. I really enjoy being asked to do medium to heavy lifting. I don't want to come to work and have it just all be there because I don't have to do anything. Like, why should I even look? (laughs) If you've already done all the work for me, then why am I? I I just don't know. I, I much more enjoy needing to do some of that work as a viewer. And so the kind of work that I have most enjoyed making is work that I think also asks people to do that. And we're talking about concepts, really, because, you know, your work is not, you know, in and of itself, each photograph is not literally difficult to understand you see, it's, they're very descriptive. You make mm-hmm. large format, extremely formal mm-hmm. black and white photographs. Mm-hmm. So it's not like it's difficult. You know, you and I are going to look at a photograph of yours and we both see the same descriptive properties and information there in the photograph. Mm-hmm. So it's really, we're really, um, we're really talking about Sure, individual photographs for sure. I mean, obviously, some of your individual photographs are more obtuse, to use your word, than than others. Mm-hmm. But particularly when we start putting it together as a body, right? I mean, th- does that sound right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, I guess another thing that is important to me is that there can be a lot of different meanings coming out of the work. Like, I hope that when you come to it and then maybe leave and come back to it, you can come to a different conclusion or maybe you can pick up something that you didn't necessarily pick up before. And I think having the pictures not be so legible or so available from the jump encourages a kind of revisiting and a re-looking and a rethinking and a re-evaluating, not only necessarily about not only about what the pictures are doing, 
but about what we assume the pictures to be doing based on our own baggage as viewers. And is there room in that for the pictures to be emotional as well, at the very least for you? I don't know about the viewer. I mean, mm. each viewer, it's going to be different. But is there room in that for you when, when you're making and editing to feel that these pictures have a certain amount of emotion in them? Or are you really sort of coming down on the side of sort of more intellectual engagement with the actual individual pictures? I think both are important. I think in the work that I made in grad school, part of what I thought was lacking after making that work was a lack of emotion or a lack of, like I wanted the pictures to feel more visceral and noticing those two things missing were kind of what led me to make the what had happened work. For me, some of those pictures, like there's a picture of the back of a woman in her tomato, like in her garden, in her backyard. Yep. That's called Vision Bump Wonderful and Curl. Photograph. Thank you. That picture is very emotional for me. And then there's another picture, maybe one of the pictures of the backyard, Inglewood. Those pictures are very emotional. I mean, those those pictures all are pretty emotional for me because I think they are if not based on memories, they're based on, this might sound crazy, but they're based on visions that I feel like I have when I try to think of certain people. And in a lot of ways that work, because it is like revealing these memories or these sort of visual ideas that I have about these people in these places, it feels like very intimate. So it's funny, or not funny, but you know, it's interesting to me that the work comes off as being so intellectual when for me, I think there is a lot of the work feels very intimate. I definitely I mean, just as a viewer of the work, it does feel more intimate to me than here now. Mm -hmm. So I think if that's the idea, then I, you know, it certainly feels that way to me. Mm. And I, I feel that emotion in the work. I, I think your work is incredibly beautiful. I mm. mean, I wanted Thank to talk you. to you because I was very moved by your work. Mm. And, you know, there's also, I think, a certain amount of like Robert Adams in your mm -hmm. work. And I love Adams. And I mean, I'm sort of a perfect audience for your work because it's, <laughs> it's the type of work I love. Um, and I actually wanted to ask you, just digress a little bit here into just a couple pictures that our listeners are going to have to go Google, but mm. I'm just dying to know that you have a couple images. One is called SAP 2019 mm -hmm. and the other is Untitled Diptych Crack 2019. Mm -hmm. And I felt so much Harry Callahan in mm. those pictures, but is that just me because I love Harry Callahan or? Well, I like, I love Harry Callahan too. And it's funny that you mentioned him because I like, I looked him, I liked him a lot when I first started taking pictures as like a teenager. I was really into his work and I revisited it recently having forgotten about it. And I was like, oh, yeah, these are great. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny that you mentioned him because I don't think he was at the top of mind when I made this work. But that doesn't mean he wasn't in there somewhere, you know. Oh, I, I think he was in there. I mean, forgive me for being so pushy, but <laughs> I, I think he was in there. I mean, and I, and I actually think that's really interesting because, I mean, obviously, I did not know what you just said. And um. <laughs> So I would say I, that, but that's so interesting about influence because 
if he was someone who you really were interested in and liked or loved when you were a teenager, I mean, that's sort of probably when you were really coming to photography, mm-hmm. then that influence probably settled in. And that's what influence does. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one thing that I haven't asked you yet, and I probably should have earlier, but, you know, can you just describe this body of work we've just been talking about for the past few minutes? Can you can you just mm-hmm. describe what it what it is, what it means to you? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I guess in like a very basic way, they are four by five photographs scanned inkjet prints and in terms of ah, this interesting <laughs> yes yes very interesting yes okay we'll come back to that go on <laughs> um yeah and i don't make the prints so there's that too just fyi but cats out of the bag <laughs> sorry what <laughs> yeah well i just i can't <laughs> as, as long as they're good that's all that matters <laughs> but the pictures themselves are well the subject matter varies the subject matter uh, there are some images that maybe you could call portraiture I would say that they were portraiture adjacent because I you know I guess going back to our conversation about the work not being so legible as as a photographer as an artist I it is very interesting and fun for me to try to figure out how to upend conventions or hang-ups that I have around certain ways of photographing so like you know, I hesitate to call them portraits because I think I am more interested in making something that is like kind of like a portrait, but not quite a portrait. And the same thing goes for like a kind of landscape or landscape pictures, like the sap picture that you mentioned and the diptych crack picture. Those are both my version of landscape, which I think is not necessarily what you one might think of when they think of a landscape picture, but that's how that's one way that I think about landscape. So the work itself or the group of pictures themselves are featuring different things. And then I guess as a whole, the work was inspired by my thinking about the Great Migration and I guess my own person, my family's history. My maternal grandfather moved from Denton, Texas to Los Angeles as like a 12-year-old in the 50s. And my maternal grandmother also moved from Texas to then to Michigan, actually, I think, and then to L.A. um, at some point in the 50s. And they met and married in L.A. and had my mom. And, you know, here I am. And for anyone who doesn't know, the Great Migration, I guess the sort of quick version is that the Great Migration was a period and the during the 20th century from around, you know, the 19 teens till the 1980s, early 80s, during which 6 million, roughly 6 million black Americans moved out of the South to the North, to the West, to the Midwest, just out of the South. And so I had always been really interested in that history, but I had also always thought it was just my interest in my own family. I think there are people are interested in their own families. I think a lot of Artists make work not necessarily about the family, but their families. Obviously, Larry Sultan comes to mind and Pictures from Home comes to mind. And then there wouldn't be like a huge sort of a gold rush in the like, I don't know, self genealogy (laughs) field. Like, obviously, this is something that people are interested in broadly. And so I had never really considered my own interest in my family and their sort of peace in the Great Migration 
I never thought of it as material, intellectual material for my work until a couple years ago when I read this book uh, called The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. And reading her description of the Great Migration and the way that she does it, which is via four individual stories and then sort of bouncing between these stories and then bouncing you know, between those stories and the larger sort of scope of the story, that made me realize that it was bigger than just my family, obviously. And it just, it became, it really took hold of me. And, you know, after making that grad school work, I really wanted to make work that felt more personal, but was still kind of rooted in history and in thinking about different stories from the past that are not as focused on as other stories. And so that's how I started making the work. I don't think the work is about the Great Migration. I think it's a very important thing to say, an important distinction to make, but it's really inspired by that. So that's sort of the the, the difference between sort of uh, authors, and by author, I mean you, a creator, mm. your sort of personal parameters and motivation for something and what the viewer may get from it. I mean, that that's actually mm -hmm. really sort of coming back around to what we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. That sort of, it's not a disconnect. It's a, it, it's just sort of like a, it's like you, the river starts flowing. I don't know, somehow I always come up with river metaphors, <laughs> but it's like the river starts flowing at one point and that's your sort of motivation to do something. And by the time it gets to the viewer, it's sort of downriver mm -hmm. somewhat. And it's sort of separated to a certain extent, right, from mm -hmm. that sort of very personal motivation. So you don't have that expectation for the viewer to connect to it in mm -hmm. that exact way, unless they're reading the text that you wrote mm -hmm. or Leslie Martin wrote about it or whoever mm -hmm. wrote about it. No, it's it's really, I, it's sort of really interesting that um, Isabel Wilkerson's amazing, by the way. Mm -hmm. I just feel like I have to acknowledge that. I just read <laughs> Cast. Which oh, is I just, have it. I haven't read it yet. She's great. Oh, my God. She's, she's so an amazing awesome. writer. Yeah, she's so badass. You know. <laughs> um, holy cow. <laughs> One thing I'm really, I, you know, I, I don't know how, speaking of honesty, you know, how, how, I mean, maybe everything was great, whatever, and that's that's what you'll say, and that's what it is. <laughs> but I really am curious about the Yale experience, because mm -hmm. I've worked over the years with many artists who were Yale MFA grads, and it seems to me that it is like the single biggest leg up. Mm. It's like the, it's both an incredible education, but it also seems like an, just unbelievable networking. Mm -hmm. You know, once you're in that sort of club, there are a lot of doors open for you. Mm. And yeah, so I'm really interested in, in what the Yale experience was like for you. I know you won the Richard Benson Award there, so mm -hmm. which is fantastic. And, and maybe this also sort of get us over to some other really wonderful achievements. This is <laughs> like the Danielle Bowman Achievement Awards podcast, oh, um, <laughs> but you uh, you you also were commissioned to make photographs for the sixteen nineteen project mm -hmm. for the New York Times, which is really just must have been mind blowing. Mm -hmm. But anyway, let's start with Yale. Maybe you just tell us a bit about what it was like going okay. through that program. Okay. Well, I actually I have a request because I I will talk about that, but I'm really. I kind of want to hear, I want to respond to the very last thing that you mentioned about, you like your river metaphor? Because I think it's really interesting. Uh, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, sure. If that's no, okay. do it, do it. Um, well, yeah, yeah I guess I like that. And maybe I don't know if I said this before or not when we were talking about the legibility or the opacity of the work, but it's it's not important to me that people necessarily know that it was inspired by the Great Migration. But that's because I think that the there's so much else happening in the work that there is a lot that you can and maybe this is just me patting myself on the back. If it is, please let me know. But I think that there are so many other things happening in that work that, you know, ideally for me, people will get drawn in through whatever they get drawn in through, whether it's the formal stuff, whether it's, you know, the, I don't know, anything else, the subject matter, like the obvious subject matter. Some people might be more drawn to the figurative. Some people might be more drawn to the more abstract. But I think that there is, there's a lot to to dig into in that work, like ideas about family, ideas about home, ideas about domesticity, ideas about urban design and and the way that cities are set up and ideas about memory and time um, and light and shadow that because of all of those other things that are working and that are present and that are important to me, I think that's why it's not necessarily so important that people be able to like see the pictures without any sort of writing or guidance from me and just sort of see them and not necessarily be like, oh, yeah, these are about the Great Migration, because they're not really about that. They're just inspired by that. Alejandro so. Cartagena, in my book Photo Work, he, he talks about what you just described as, mm. you know, layers, you mm. know, sort of like if you build up enough layers, then, you know, there's going to be an entry point for almost everyone. Mm -hmm. And it, they just may be completely different from person to person. But mm -hmm. if you put enough layers in, there should be, you know, it should work out. There should be something for almost everyone looking at. It. I, I love that idea. It's like, and the way you describe it, it's almost like little Easter eggs. But, <laughs> um, you know, I sort of love that idea. And by the way, I completely agree with that. And let me just say that, you know, if I'm working with a client and let's say they're, you know, looking at two different images by one of my artists and they're really torn between the two mm. and they ask my advice, which they should choose, and if I can't get them to buy both, um, <laughs> then, <laughs> then, you know, I'll always push someone toward the, the image that has more layers because mm. I don't want a client to ever put a... a print by one of my artists, something that I sold to them up on their wall, and then realize in six months or a year, two years, or even five years, mm -hmm. that it's not still giving to right. them. Totally. Yeah, that's so important. So, you know, I will always try and steer people away from, you know, maybe the shinier mm -hmm. image. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, the more important image is the more complex image. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know I'm not saying anything particularly profound here, but I'm <laughs> completely with you. And, you know, I think that that complexity is really important to to having a long um, engagement. And mm -hmm. as someone who, like me, I live with tons of photography all over my house. Mm -hmm. And it's really moving to me how at different points in my life, the work means different things to me. Mm -hmm. But I have the work that I have is, you know, that I own is really strong work. And so mm -hmm. it has that complexity. So whether I'm going through a difficult time or a more jo joyful time or, you know, there's ways to interact with the work because it does, 
it does have those those layers. Mm -hmm. Um, That's so important to me because I I just it's a shame to come to something and just sort of be able to think like, oh, yeah, I know what what's going on here. Like that really is not that's bad. (laughs) And I just um, it's important for me for my work to not. I don't know. I mean, I'm saying this now. Who knows what I'll be doing in a year or two years. But I'm pretty certain that I'm way more invested in the complicated and the complex than anything else because of what you're describing. Yeah, no, it's really beautiful to have these lifelong, however, whatever lifelong means, however many years that is, but Mm. to have these um, long ongoing relationships, you know, with with artwork. I mean, it's just one of the most beautiful things in the world, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So pivoting here, you, you made a number of photographs for the New York Times 1619 project, including, if I'm correct, the cover image for the magazine. So mm-hmm. can you talk about that? It must have been an incredible experience. Um, well, getting, the, getting asked to do it was crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I well, I will never forget. It was like it was the day after my birthday last summer and I was getting ready to go to my birthday party and I was late <laughs> because I got this email from Jessica Dimson who is wonderful. I think she's the deputy photo director at the New York Times Magazine and she was you know she said hi you know this we're working on this thing nicole hannah jones is spearheading it and we love your work and we thought of you for this and would you be interested and i just remember thinking like is this a scam (laughs) like is this a real i don't know that this is real and i was like no this is totally real this is amazing so i emailed her back and we had a phone conversation and yeah, and I, I kind of, I think they sent me out because it, it was all traveling. It was a lot of traveling. I think they sent me out like the following week or maybe two weeks later. I went on my first trip out to work on that. So yeah, that was um, my first editorial assignment. So really, How did they know of you? How did they know your work? Well, I, in October of 2018, at the encouragement, someone, some, another photo editor who I met through the Woodstock CPW residency. I did that residency in the summer of 2018. And I met. Yeah, Chris really, Graves is here oh. right now in that. Re- <laughs> oh, oh, it's a great residency. Yep. It's a great residency. I was, ha- I was with him yesterday over oh, at the house. That's yeah. so, yeah, that house is such a, it's old. <laughs> yeah, it is old. <laughs> 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 um, there are some old houses up there, but I met a I met a photo editor through that residency, and he's awesome. And I asked him. I told him I was curious about doing editorial work, but I wasn't really sure how to go about it. And he was like, "Oh, you should email these people. Just email them your portfolio." Because I spent a little bit of time between undergrad and grad school working for a photo agent. I am no stranger to cold calling or cold emailing people. I have no shame. <laughs> I will do it. Good. And I That's think, great. Yeah. Well, when I worked for the agent and she would 
be like, well, just call this person. And I would say, well, do you know them? And she'd say, no, just call them and <laughs> ask and try to get this photographer we represent a meeting. And I was just sort of like, okay. So that experience really kind of showed me that even people who have representation, the representation is still doing the cold calling and emailing for you. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, They might know some editors, but they don't know everybody. So that that October... I cold emailed a bunch of editors, including Kathy Ryan, and she had actually visited Yale for a lecture while I was there. And Yale is one of the reasons Yale is great is because all of these wonderful people will come all the way up to New Haven from wherever, from New York, to have studio visits and give talks. And I didn't have a studio visit with Kathy Ryan that day, but I saw her talk. And so when I emailed her, I'd mentioned that I had seen her talk and she responded actually to my first email and said, thanks for your interest. And, you know, it was very nice. Then I didn't hear anything, which like, I think is pretty typical. And then like nine months later, I get this email about 1619. So yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I just want to like, I want to sort of do an audio version of taking my highlighter pen and just highlighting a few things here for for listeners. Because I know that I know because I hear from them, which is absolutely lovely. I know we have a lot of listeners who are in undergrad and in grad school or just starting out and trying to navigate their way. So I think it's worth just just sort of um, emphasizing some of the things you just said. First of all, I just want to say that Kathy Ryan is the photo editor, the head photo editor of the New York Times magazine, and she's sort of a real icon in our world and has just done incredible work for the New York Times magazine and hires a lot of fine artists to Mm -hmm. shoot in their style. You know, I work with a lot of them. So I and and or they're friends of mine. So whether it's, you know, from Eleanor Carucci, Matthew Pillsbury, I mean, I know Julian Lau does work and and, uh, Brian Scutmott, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so it's a it's a really wonderful thing to be connected with Kathy. But so cold calling, okay. Um, networking, unbelievably important. Mm-hmm. The personal, which is that you remind, or you didn't remind Kathy, but you mentioned to Kathy that you had been there when she spoke up at Yale. So mm-hmm. just that sort of, you know, making it clear you're not like a complete stranger. Mm-hmm. And maybe that sounds discouraging for people listening who you know, can't use that connection. But I would Mm -hmm. just say that anything you can sort of use to just sort of assure someone that you're writing to um, or that you're asking for something from from someone who's sort of a stranger, the more you can sort of envelop it in some sort of familiar... I mean, I know when people write to me that who I don't know who want me to look at their work, Mm -hmm. that... You know, even just saying something like, you know, Sasha, I really love your roster. I particularly love this artist or that artist makes me feel like, you know, you're not just cutting and pasting. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, these things are we're all human beings. Right. Mm -hmm. And why shouldn't someone respond if you write them a nice email? Mm -hmm. Obviously, people get inundated and they can't reply to everything. But as many people out in the world can testify to this fact, I respond to almost every email I get from a stranger, as long as it 
like I said, doesn't seem like someone just cut and pasted, mm. you know, some something they've been sending to everyone. I mean, you know, and, and I appreciate when someone puts in the effort. And so I, I put in some effort back. But it's really worth it to just get out there and hustle, right? And this mm-hmm. paid off for you in such a huge, incredible way. And yeah, and just congratulations. It's just Thank it's, you. It's so great. Thank you. So what did it feel like doing the work? I mean, you know, obviously, there's probably some personal connection, family history and and legacy mm-hmm. of slavery. And what was it? How did it feel doing the doing the work? Yeah, um, it was pretty intense. It was very intense. But as I was doing it, I did not really give myself the room to be probably as, um, I don't know, to be as emotional about it as I may have wanted to. I don't really think mm-hmm. I gave myself an opportunity to feel the intense emotions that I did end up feeling until I was like not on the road because I, yeah. you know, there's the pressure. Oh, there's always the pressure of just trying to do a good job. Like you got to get the picture. You've got to get the picture, especially when it comes to editorial work, you know, th- you have to deliver something. So there yep. is you there you have to get from point A to point B. And I think I really focused a lot of my attention towards trying to figure out how to photograph the places that they sent me to, especially because many of those locations were not are not easy to photograph and many of the locations were not places that I would inherently be attracted to photographing. And, you know, for anyone who's seen it, the and you'll know it's like it's photographs of fields. It's like a, an intersection somewhere um, with a statue. It's a building somewhere. So it was hard to figure out how to approach the work photographically. But then I think there was also a lot of emotional labor that I was having to do while working on it. I've definitely never thought so much about slavery and the legacy of slavery and how it that legacy is apparent in our everyday life. I had never really sort of time traveled in that way before when thinking about that. And I'm really grateful to have been given the opportunity to work on that project because it it changed the way that I think about everything. It changed the way that I make my own work, I think. It was just kind of a wonderful opportunity. It was exhausting also. (laughs) Um, Like the manual labor of it, of traveling, of getting to the places. I didn't work with an assistant. So like having to watch my back in places that I am very unfamiliar with, that was the most time I had ever spent in the South. And so being in such a place, being in such a different place was something that I had to navigate also. And that's not to say that like the North or the West are like, you know, Edenic. Like I'm not, (laughs) I definitely don't have any I'm not confused about what right. what the world yep. is. Certainly not. But, you know, being in an unfamiliar place alone and trying to focus on getting a picture, just it was a lot. So it was and a also, very, I would assume, I'm sorry, forgive no, no, me for, okay. and, and, and also forgive me if I'm about to now, you know, psychoanalyze you in a way that's completely off base, but I would assume that it would also probably feel scary because you're sort of having to conjure up memories, not memories, but imaginings 
of the worst, one of the worst times, if not the worst time in American history, mm-hmm. which is the beginning of slavery. So, you know, those early years. And and so I, I can imagine that, you know, it would make you feel even more sort of uneasy because your headspace is in a very, must have been in a very painful and, and scary time, right? I mean, does that sound right? Or Yeah, I mean, I think painful is an is a correct word. Yeah, I don't know. I hesitate. Scary, I hesitate. I but I do think because it feels, I don't know, so much bigger than that. Like it, it it's so yeah. um, it's so yeah. so vast. It is such a vast deep pain and it was very intense and I could not I really kind of had to be pretty I don't know, boundaried with what I was letting myself feel because of wanting to do justice to the work. Yeah, it was a very sort of intense, very intense. That's (laughs) the word that I always use to describe it is intense. Well, uh, before we wrap up, I just want to go back to something we mentioned but didn't get a chance to discuss, which is your experience at Yale, because I, I do think that the Yale MFA has a sort of outsized, you know, influence in the photo fine art world. So I thought it'd be just really wonderful to hear from you what your experience was like there. Yeah. For me, it was really important. I think partly because kind of as we talked about uh, before, I had taken some time off of taking pictures and I had taken some time away from my practice. So it was um, going, the decision to go to grad school and the decision to go to Yale and then going were super were important ways for me to reconnect and figure out what I actually cared about with my work. But then on, I guess, a sort of more community level, it was so important to meet the people that I met. And I'm not like, obviously, the networking is one aspect of it, but I think more importantly, um, my cohort. And then in particular, there's a few people who I became so close with, I'm still really close with, and some faculty who I'm still really close with, who to this day, I will, like, if I'm working on something, I'll take a picture with my phone and text it to them and say, is this trash? Or like, does this do anything? Or like, is this too green? (laughs) Um, So that network of peers, I, yeah, I don't know. I feel so grateful. And then, as you say, Yale photo and Yale art, I guess in general, does have this outsized reputation. And it's, it's such this, like, it's such a myth. It's such like, a I don't know, from the outside, I think it becomes a caricature of what it actually is. And yeah you're so excited and you're getting ready to go and you kind of don't know what to expect from other people, if people are going to want to flex like all the time or not. And then you get there and you realize it's just another place, just like anywhere else. There are computers that sometimes don't work. There are people with personalities. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It just happens to be this kind of, I don't know, photo sort of heaven in some ways, um, or hell, I guess it depends on who you ask. But for me, it was important to like meet other people who I felt like I could really connect with, 
about personal stuff, but also about the work. Um, and it was important to have that time to focus on my work. And is there... I mean, I don't, you know, if you don't feel comfortable saying that's absolutely fine, but I'm, you know, I'm a curious person. Um, mm. Just wondering if there, you know, who who were the teachers you felt sort of the most connection to? And you could, this could either be personally or as far as work goes. Hmm. Well, A.L. Steiner started teaching, I think in my, well, she was on the panel I think from my first semester on, but then she was an official faculty member, I think, uh, gosh, in the first semester of my second year. Um, she's an amazing artist. She's an amazing teacher, um, an amazing mentor. She's really generous. And I, we're, you know, I'm still in touch with her. Um, I think John Pelson <laughs> is awesome. Um, and always yeah. has, like, you always look forward to what he has to say. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then, you know, everyone else, like, I think, I think it can be very easy to be very critical of our teachers when we are students. And I think it can be hard to remember that they're also people, especially now that I'm a teacher myself. <laughs> it's like, you know, I sort of see all of the things in myself that I would probably have criticized in other people. So I guess I just, I don't know, like I appreciate their labor, I guess I will say. Right, yeah. um, and then some of the, you know, the critics that would come were amazing. Um, Sandra Perry is amazing. Dina Lawson, an awesome critic, a really brilliant artist, obviously, and um, just gives great feedback. Lots of lots and lots of people. Leslie Hewitt, El Perez. Yeah, great, great people. Well, Danielle, Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I know there's more things for us to talk about, mm -hmm. but um, we'll, we'll have to pick it up another time. But mm -hmm. I, I really appreciate talking with you and mm, thank you. can't wait until, you know, there are things, more things in person and, mm -hmm. and you know, I can come see your prints in person and try and figure out why you're not making silver prints. But um <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a print snob. Yeah. Um, I know. No it's kidding. horrible. That, by the way, that's like just completely betrays my age. That's what's really is going on there. But anyway, um, no, thank you so much and be well. Thank you. You too. And until next time. Okay. Bye. 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 Take care. Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is produced by me, Michael Chauvin Dalton of Real Photo Show. The executive producer is Sasha Wolf, and our theme music is by J. Walter Hawks. You can hear Photo Work on all your favorite podcast platforms. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, and be sure to subscribe on any one of those services or wherever you listen to podcasts.